motivation is a, is a good thing, isn't it? Um, when we have a strong motivation to accomplish a task, it, it's really helpful. It helps us accomplish things. Um, my children are at the age where motivation is pretty effective um, in, in their life. Um, and, and as parents, we get really um, good at leveraging motivation for obedience. Um, and we want to teach the right type of obedience to our children for right purpose, not just for achieve, uh, receiving something. But let me give you an example. Like in my kid's life, thankfully, and I am blessed for this, um, they, as well as our dog, love to see me come home. And if I spend a long day at the office or some other things going on or I'm somewhere I come home and I can't have to decide which is more excited, the dog who about messes on the floor because you come to the front door as if she hasn't seen another human being in the world, or my children. And I enjoy that. You parents know what I'm talking about, the joy of meeting your parents, or your, your children again. And in my kids' life, sometimes when I'm leaving from breakfast, there might be a few things said once in a while like, hey, by the way, We've got this special thing we might do today. Depends on how you behave today. If you listen to mom in school and you get your chores done, if you're ready, when dad comes home, we might be able to do this. Oh, is there a motivation to do well, right? Depending on what's promised and what's to come, my children are thrilled. And when they accomplish those tasks and when they're obedient and they do these things, the motivation throughout the day that's driven them to these things and their father comes home and the children meet the father and the award is given and the joy is had. Motivation can be a good thing. It's exciting. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, this paramount crown jewel passage of 1 Corinthians and some would argue of all scripture or the New Testament it so clearly articulates the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been studying this, and most recently, let me give you a, a quick refresh of how Paul has just provided in this chapter, some weeks ago as we've been looking together, he's been providing the certainty of the resurrection, providing knowledge of that. He's been communicating the, the certainty of the bodily resurrection of believers because of the first fruits, Jesus Christ, his bodily resurrection, because of the acceptance of his sacrifice by Creator God. Then he walked us through the consequences and thinking of the, uh, the logical responses to an illogical claim that Christ had not risen or that we as Christians would not rise from the dead. And so you'll remember in the chapter here, he gives the what ifs. What if Christ's he was rotting in the grave today. What would that mean for us as Christians? Well, it would mean no motivation for living now. It would mean no future hope of heaven. It would mean no bodily resurrection. It would mean everything but the gospel. It'd be dismal. Then he walked us through the order in God's redemptive resurrection plan. That was more exciting, wasn't it? See, the pretense is we understand that Christ not only rose, but that we too will rise because he has risen bodily and have a future glorified body one day. Christ is not finished with us after death. And so Paul worked out most recently God's redemptive resurrection plan, the order and sequence of major events involving our death, Christ's return, the resurrection of the body, the meeting together with our bodies, the future glorification and eternity with Him. 
Oh, there's joy in that. And then Paul pauses now where we are today in verses 29 through 34 of 1 Corinthians 15. 29 through 34, Paul pauses really in a way to apply the doctrine to his readers. and to That's the teaching here that he's been talking about. I'm going to make some application, Paul is saying. So as he's writing, or it's being a scribe is writing for him in this letter, he now is communicating to Christians and to his readers firstly that everything I've been saying, here is an application. Here's how you can live now in light of these truths. This is the part that our, we turn our ears for, on for, right? In messages typically, like, oh, the application part. Here's what I need to do. Here's, the, here's what I can do with this. We should always be thinking that way, and Paul makes it very easy and clear for us. He reminds Christians that the resurrection is so very closely married to, the mo- to our motivations and hopes in this life right now. The existence of Christ's resurrection, promising the reality of our bodily resurrection, is intertwined with today's now living and the motivation for living for him right now. Here's how. Here are some of the things. The fact that God has promised a resurrection provides powerful motivation for us now. And I'd like you to notice with me the practical implications of the resurrection. Firstly, firstly, in verse 29, I think we see it motivates us to a future reunion a future reunion with those who have died in Christ before us. There is a guaranteed future reunion, God's Word teaches, and that provides a motivation for us now. Look at verse 29, please, with me. passage says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Now let's pause right there. Everybody take a breath. This is a difficult verse to interpret. This is a tough verse to understand. I, as your pastor, cannot stand here and say, I know exactly what this verse is talking about. I don't know. But I have some insight, and Scripture does give, from Scripture, not some sort of other extra interesting insight. But scripture, I think I'm pointing out to you, provides some insight into understanding what Paul is speaking of here, remembering the context of the original readers of whom he's writing to. So we look at verse 29 at this very difficult verse. And by the way, I'll let you know too, I was reminded and, and, and did not study every single one of these interpretations, but it has been said, and I think it is right, that there are in excess of 40 different interpretations of verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. Right? That should just cause us to stop, to pray, to slow down, and be careful on how we jump to interpretation of verse 29. Let me, let me point out some things that I think are clear, and let me point out to you some things that I think this verse does not teach that will help us get closer to what I believe what Paul is communicating here in verse 29. I think it's pretty safe to understand, to assume that no doubt this practice of being baptized by a living person for those who have already died was more familiar to the Corinthians 
at the time of this writing than it is puzzling for you and me today. That kind of goes without saying because of the fact that Paul spoke these terms and said these things to these people, okay? And so let's try to figure out how they would be thinking and how Paul, what he would be intending here. As puzzling as this verse remains to be, we can be certain from other scripture that this passage in scripture does not teach a proxy baptism or a vicarious baptism. Those terms, proxy and vicarious, communicate the the reality or the understanding and teaching of one individual's being baptized and immersed in water for the salvific um, efforts and ends of another individual. Does that sound alarming to you a little bit? It ought, it ought to. And if it does, it's probably because you also understand passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Passages like John chapter 3 and verse 16. I'll look at those in a moment. But unless this sounds so incredibly foreign to you, you say, Pastor, why are you even bringing this up? And why are you bringing up the wrong form of interpretation of this passage? It's because there are many of our loved neighbors around us, especially in this community, that will practice this sort of interpretation of this passage. Many of you know already that our Mormon neighbors and friends, of course, make the baptism of the dead a major part of their teaching, a major part of their practice, the baptism of the dead, this vicarious or proxy baptism, which is a false teaching. It is not in line with Scripture. It is taught otherwise in Scripture. Even in, within the temples, they, there are Mormons that will, that will teach and actively practice actually baptizing living Mormons for people who have died without being Mormons. Like in the effort for rescuing and saving those who did not convert to Mormonism in this living life. Now, How do we begin to reconcile this with what's going on in Corinth and why Paul might be bringing this up? Well, the the assumption, the, the underlining realization here that I believe is going on is that there is some form of this type of understanding and practice going on in Corinth that Paul is using this to address and using this as an illustration to communicate what he is teaching us in 15 as a whole, this chapter concerning the living, the resurrection of the dead after this earthly life. Now, if you go over to Ephesians for a moment, let me remind you of an incredible passage that you ought to work at memorizing. It would be a tremendous passage of Scripture if you have not already. So foundational on salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at these words with me so that you may see that they are so as well. Verse 8 of chapter 2, Ephesians, Paul writes, For by grace are you saved through faith. Okay? Okay? Look at the next part. 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation, dear friends, is the gift of God, not the works of man. Verse 9 says, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is all of grace through faith. Clearly, these pa- this passage, these verses, as well as John 3.16, and other passages, it clearly teaches that salvation is by grace, through faith, not by works of man. And it's so important to understand these things because you know what that does? That tears out the rug from underneath the false teaching of any sort of baptismal regeneration, of any sort of proxy or vicarious baptism, of any works-based salvation. It doesn't exist. It's a lie. And I don't say that to be unduly hurtful and harmful on those who would understand or teach this, but to teach what God's Word says concerning salvation. By grace, through faith. Oh, we need to understand that when we come to a passage like this. When we come to difficult passages as Christians, New Testament believers, as Baptists, we go to other passages that are more clear so that we can understand there's yet another meaning here for this writing. Verse 29. It's a difficult verse. Again, I understand the assumption in this verse is that there was an expectation that life goes beyond the grave. I think Paul was writing with the understanding, the expectation that life goes beyond the grave. Remember, he speaks to them as Christians. Remember, he says, remember the things that I have told you. Remember the things that I've preached to you. Verse 1, verse uh, 15 of chapter 15. Remember these things that I've preached. These things that you have believed and have brought you unto salvation. Remember these things. So there's an assumption, there's an understanding that the Christians he's writing to, that you and I know that there is a resurrection after the dead. And it seems as though there was an an exception of of some sort of ritual in Corinth that practiced a form of substitutionary baptism for the dead. And it seems to appear that there was some form of exception or practicing of this even amongst the ranks of the Christians in the Corinthian church. And so Paul writes to them. And it is only logical to think that if these Corinthians bought into false teaching about the resurrection of the dead, they were likely also accepting false teaching about the baptism of the dead. Do you remember this was the cultural philosophical norm for the Greeks of the day? Do you remember, the, as, as I reminded you of the day, let me just remind you, the cultural thinking and philosophical thinking was that the body was sinful. The body was, was, would not last in eternity. The soul was separate from the body. So when death came for a human being, it freed the soul of a sinful, carnal, immoral body so that the soul could go live in some vapor, bliss, rainbow cloud of somewhereness. I don't know. I need more detail than that. Praise God for the scripture. This was the kind of cultural brainwashing that was going on at that time in Corinth. And so Paul writes to kind of cleanse their thinking, to shake them awake, 
that they might snap out of the drunken stupor that they were in and adapting this type of thinking and integrating this heretical, unbiblical practices. Verse 29 seems to communicate whatever the practice was, whatever was going on, it was done with a view of the resurrection of the dead. Paul's point, I believe, is if the dead are not raised from the dead at all, then why would they need to be baptized for at all? You see that in verse 29? I see that. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead not rise at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Of course, we know that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Amen? And we have no need, nor can we do anything to save the dead or the alive. That is for Christ alone to do. But those who have died in Christ will be reunited with those who are in Christ one day. So firstly, in verse 29, there is great practical motivation in the comfort and the hope of the future reunion of those who have preceded us in death and who are in Christ. Secondly, and very quickly, look at verses 30 through 32. The verses get a little bit more clear, a little bit easier to deal with. Secondly, in verses 30 through 32, I believe we see that it motivates us to sacrificial service right now. The reality of the bodily resurrection motivates the church to sacrificial living right now. See, if there is no resurrection, there is no reward in heaven for service on earth. You realize that? You remove the reality of the resurrection and there's, there's no future reward. There's no need for that. Lack of resurrection removes service motivation right now. Look at verse 30, please. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest. That's like saying, I swear, I promise. By your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die daily, Paul says. Verse 32, if after the manner of men I have fought with beasts of Ephesus, what advantage it, what advantage it me? What does it get me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Verses 30 and 31 first. We'll get to 32 there, that first part, in a minute. But verses 30 and 31, let me point out to you that Paul suffered horribly. For Christ. Paul suffered for Christ. Many other Christians suffered for Christ. The Apostle Paul's life was in constant jeopardy of life, harm, and danger. Death, harm, and danger. Why would Paul sacrifice to serve Christ? He asks a rhetorical question. He puts the question to us, you know how I suffer. You have heard how I suffer. If there is no life after death, if there's no bodily resurrection, then why in the world would I put my life on the line? Why would I suffer um, uh, uh, for Christ 
if there is no motivation in this life for him right now. Let me show you a couple of spots. You're in 1 Corinthians, I hope. Go over to 2 Corinthians and look at what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 4. Listen to the description of his suffering. Be reminded of what he was motivated to live through. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-14 through 14 says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bear bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, because of this, death worketh in us, but life in you. Then you come to verse 13 and he says, We having the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken, we also believe and therefore speak. Verse 14, Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Oh, there's a neat word study there and the usage of the word us and you in the bodily presentation reuniting together again. Here lies a great motivation to experience so much trouble because Paul, speaking for the apostles, says we speak the truth. We suffer all of this because there will be a resurrection. This is only temporal. If you go over to chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, notice another passage, chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse uh, chapter uh, 4. Listen to this. But in all things, approving ourselves as ministers of God, in such patience, in affliction, in necessities, in distress, in stripes, in imprisonments, in turmoils, in label, la- uh, labors, in watching, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report, by good reports, as deceivers yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as chastened and not killed as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. This comes from the lips and the heart of one who is suffering for Christ, yet possessing the motivation in the bodily resurrection and eternal life afterwards. A reason, a motivation for suffering. If we took the time, you might note down at the passage. I won't turn there now, but Acts 20, verses 22 through 27, where Paul answers why he would suffer and why he would suffer if there was 
no future resurrection, he wouldn't. There would be no need. It would be senseless. Back to 1 Corinthians 15 and look at verse 32, the very first part of that verse there. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. Maybe some of you have an image right now of him wrestling with a lion, tangling with a bear, being chased by a bull. I wonder if it's possible that there's a figurative sort of speech here of speaking of those who he would seek to reason with and that would argue with him. Men and women who would shun him, cast him off. It, it, would, it would appear that um, uh, it, it would be complete madness to be a Christian if there was no resurrection from the dead. And why should we sacrifice to serve Christ? Why should we seek to put ourselves in danger to interact with those who would behave like animals in response to the truth that we preach? Why? Why would we do this? Because Christ is alive. Because Christ has risen and our promises in Him for a resurrection are real. And to believe in the fact that God raises the dead is a tremendous encouragement to endure suffering and even physical suffering right now for the cause of Christ. The motivation of a future resurrection to those who are in Christ. You know, that drives us to another application, and that is that we must serve Him now. Serve Him in your workplaces. Serve Him in your relationships. Serve Him in any interaction, in any place, in any ministry the Lord has sovereignly placed you in now. Serve Christ now. What we do in this life has direct implications in the next. We will answer for what we have done. We will answer for what we have not done, Christians. The last part of verse 32 tells us what advantage, what, is, what, what advantage if it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What Paul, I believe, is saying here is if no resurrection, then just party, party, party. If there, let's stop for a minute. Think, if there was no bodily resurrection for us, then my goodness, let's live like the Greeks told us to do. Let's just party, stuff whatever we can down our bellies, drink whatever we want, do whatever we want, abuse the bodies that God has loaned to us for His service, and this was the motto of the rich young ruler. Do you remember in Luke, 20, or Luke 12, verse 19? The rich ruler, the fool, says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Paul says if there is no resurrection, then that motto would make sense. This was the cultural philosophy of the day in Corinth. This kind of unbiblical thinking comes from having no sense of a biblical teaching concerning our reality of an eternal destination of everyone. 
Apart from the resurrection, life has no meaning. Apart from the resurrection, life and anything in life is useless. Apart from the resurrection, we have no purpose. Oh, but we know. Oh, we know Christ has risen. We see the effects of his resurrection. My life has been changed by my Savior. Has yours? The churches are growing because of the Lord. Is ours? God is alive and working in and through our lives, changing us into his image as we respond to him and his teaching. Christ has risen from the dead. I have been forgiven. God has accepted his sacrifice. There is great practical motivation in purpose and result of our sacrificial living. And in verses 33 and 34, we wrap up this morning, we see one last final motivation, and that is a motivation that drives us toward holiness now. Living in holiness right now. Verse 33 tells us, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Children, are you listening this morning? Look at this verse, underline it, circle it. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Company with those who are evil corrupts that which is not. Psalm 1 is a perfect depiction of this reality. We see a degradation, a devolving of our ignorant Standing, sitting, walking, presence with those who are ungodly. God has not called us, church, to separate ourselves from all who are ungodly, or otherwise we can't communicate and be a witness and disciple. But when we stand in an accepting, tolerant communication, when we place before us that which is evil and corrupts, in the case of the Corinthians, accepting and receiving this, this, this doctrine from hell, that defies the truth of salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, received through faith. When we place ourselves in that presence, our thinking becomes corrupted. The, the Corinthian Christians have begun to accept the live-it-up attitude of the, culturals, uh, the culture's uh, false teachers of that day. Today we hear time and time again, live every day like it's your last. Live it up! And to that I say amen when it is rendered this way. Live every day as if it's your last and as if it matters for eternity what we do with this day. This was the cultural philosophy of the day. An old axiom goes this way, bad company corrupts good morals. I wonder, and I didn't look this up, I wonder if those who coined this phrase or axiom get this principle from this very passage in Scripture. Verse 34a, the first part of verse 34, awake to righteousness. I don't think he wrote it with that type of spirit. I think Paul wrote this way. Awake to righteousness! Put off corruption. 
Stop sinning, Paul is saying. That ought to cut deep to our hearts. If a Christian has any good sense, if he or she or you or me fear and love the Lord, we will stop sinning. Stop being deceived, Paul writes. Stop believing what is heretical. Stop receiving and swallowing the heretical cultural teaching of the day. Why? Because the last part of verse 34 says, For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame, he says. Pretty certain it was pretty quiet in the congregation when this was read. Be sober-minded, he's saying, so that the unsaved may know God. Be awake, be intentional, be biblical, be scriptural in our thinking and our practice so that others may see us and know God. Paul was calling these Christians to wake up out of their drunken stupor. They seem to be in, in, in concerning, the stupor they seem to be in concerning the resurrection because it was interfering with the transmission of the gospel it was interfering with the communication of the church you see the doctrine of the resurrection makes us accountable to the lord do you realize that think about it that way because christ has risen for us and those who place our faith and trust in him we are accountable to the lord Whereas denying the resurrection promotes sinning because it removes accountability for holy living. Remember this when you hear arguments against the resurrection. Remember this when you come across people that deny the resurrection of Christ because it bolsters their sinful living now. It excuses their way to live the way they feel they can. Denying the resurrection leads one to this devolved sort of mindset. Deny the resurrection and you deny the motive for holy living. And Paul is saying, in effect, if there is no judgment after death, then do what the Greeks were doing. Do what your culture was doing in Corinth and their pagan worship and idolatrous lifestyles. Sin like them if Christ hasn't risen. But you and I both know, Paul communicated, Christ has risen. So stop Accepting the false teaching of the cultural, the culture around them. We know the scripture teaches that believers will answer to the Lord for their thoughts. We will answer to the Lord for our thoughts and our actions one day. We'll answer for our works at the judgment seat, referred to as the Bema seat, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. We one day will answer. For how we live and treat our bodies and use our bodies now. There is great practical motivation in the resurrection that motivates us to holiness, church. Are you a Christian here this morning? I preach to Christians. Here, the church assembled together, local body of Christ. I am preaching to Christians this morning. But it is with always the knowledge that there may be some here today who do not know Christ as their Savior. You may even claim to be a Christian, but if you are not born again, you too need to understand that just like Christians and, and un-Christians, 
non-Christians. John 5, 28 and 29 tells us everybody will be raised from the dead. And there are only two destinations. One is heaven and one is hell. Both eternal, real places. God will one day raise the dead. Everybody, everyone that has died, God will raise everybody that has ever lived. And every person who dies will be resurrected to live for eternity in one of two places, heaven and hell. Those who have rejected Jesus and his offer of salvation by his terms will be punished by spending all of eternity in the torments of hell. And this is a reality. And it would be wrong and it would be unloving to not share a truth that is eternally life-changing with you this morning. Those of us who have repented of our sin, have trusted Christ alone as our personal Savior, will live for eternity in heaven, enjoying our Lord. This is what Paul is teaching. This is what Paul is telling us, make sure we're thinking correctly. Make sure we are living and believing and remembering correctly as we have been taught. What you do with Jesus in this life now will determine where your resurrected body will spend eternity after death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, the clear, the clear instruction that your word provides. Lord, it's a, it's a serious text. It's a serious passage, but oh, it is full of motivation, of joy, of hope for living now. Oh, Lord, thank you for the motivations for this life now. Lord, thank you for the promise of our bodily resurrection and the, and the hope that that provides. Lord, strengthen us to live for you, I ask. To live for you in holiness as your church right now through the power of your spirit so that we might bring you glory and be a correct witnessing image of Christ to a lost world around us. These things, Lord, I ask in faith, in your Son, Jesus' name, amen.